I don't think that the success of Bitcoin depends on the failure of the current system. So while like this whole journey through Twilight of Gold has been amazing for my education and has been amazing for my conviction, you don't really need to know all of this and nothing I've said needs to be true for Bitcoin to win. And this whole hundred year history isn't a prerequisite for Bitcoin to win. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. Sir Lester, welcome Sir back. Sir Breedlove. It um, is great to have you again. Yeah, it's uh, it's been, man, it's been a really fun time for Bitcoin. We are recording this as we... Uh, maybe well okay we've had eight weekly this is the only chart chart chat we've ever had but this is the this will be the we had eight we had eight green weekly candles in bitcoin which we've had before mm. uh, three times we've never had nine so i mm. expect this will be a down week but i mean eight green weekly candles in a row is um i don't know I, i'm not into charts i don't i don't trade but I did notice, I do look at the Bitcoin chart a lot. And that's been, it's actually been, uh, like I said in the last episode, it's been somewhat disorienting and distracting and I've been full of adrenaline, but <laughs> now it, I've calmed down a little bit. How about you? Yeah, it's we're recording today on December 11th, 
2023. Um, I did not know that eight weekly candles was the most Bitcoin I'd ever had. Green candles, Bitcoin I'd ever had. Um, however, I would say the one thing I've learned in Bitcoin is to always expect the unexpected. So nine is certainly in the cards for me. Um, uh, how has it been? I, I guess I don't, the word vindication comes to mind. Like a lot of times, at least in Bitcoin Twitter, obviously we're always discussing Bitcoin and how significant and profound it is. And you catch a lot of bullshit when the price is going down. But then as mm -hmm. soon as the price starts to come up, you get a lot more positive attention. Um, but then you also get these people coming out of the woodwork that don't know anything about Bitcoin adding commentary. Like we saw the Wiki, Wiki, Wikipedia founder. What's his name? Jimmy Wells, something like that. He tweeted recently that... Um, Something about, oh, I lost my password to my bank account, so I lost all my money. Oh, wait, that's not my bank. That's Bitcoin because my bank works and Bitcoin doesn't. And so you get these really bad takes, really uninformed takes, uh, once the Bitcoin price starts to move and, and gather people's attention again. So I'm feeling good, as usual. I mean, you don't, I guess when you're, at some point in Bitcoin, you kind of just don't feel the price as much anymore. It's just a, it's just your expectation being met, I guess, right? So when when I encounter opinions like that that are so like first level thinking, mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't ever pile on. I usually just quietly go. I go hate purchase Bitcoin. <laughs> I'll buy it like out of out of out of a desire to like just I just out of hate. It's a hate buy. I'm so mad at the person to to say such an ignorant thing in public and to abuse their followers that way. Mm. It's all you're doing is you're you're for all anyone who follows you who is prone prone to agree, it's just gonna be another minute that they don't buy Bitcoin because they you know, they hear something dumb that they think, okay, well, someone who has a lot of followers on Twitter thinks Bitcoin's dumb. So I'm going to wait another day, year. I had an old friend from college come over and uh, I started talking to him about Bitcoin. And I said, look, what, whether he said, you sound kind of crazy when I, when I was explaining <laughs> to him how deep into it I am, because we, you know, and talked to him in five or six years. And I said, look, whether whether you acknowledge it or not, or whether you like it or not, the entire world is in a race to acquire Bitcoin. Yeah. And you're either in the race or you're not. I mean, you're either participating consciously or not, but you're in it regardless. Yeah. You you yourself are in it and you don't know it. Yeah. Well, we, I guess, do sound a bit crazy maybe to people that haven't done the work. Um but that is the nature of change, right? When uh, the internet would sound crazy to people in the whatever, 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s. So I guess we that's just part of it, right? You're just gonna sound when you're when you're operating at the edge or outside the Overton window, you're just gonna sound crazy to people that are well within it. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Which is why I actually actually try and hold myself back from proselytizing now. You, you, we've talked about this before. Yeah, but we should, we should, we should begin this this high wire act that we talked about trying the two of us 
into uh, yeah. Bitcoin and politics as we as we try and segue this into, you know, this could be our last recording. We have we're not going to rush it, but this may be the last time we. This may be the end if, yeah, if we can get through it. But getting close. We ended talking about uh, America's Great Depression by Rothbard, and and at the end of the section of the book that we were talking about at the end of the last episode, he just has a, a list of what governments can do wrong in coping with the depression. And he has a six part list, um, prevent or delay liquidation by propping up firms, inflate further, keep wages up, keep prices up, stimulate consumption. And the last point that he thinks governments do wrong is to subsidize unemployment. Mm-hmm. And he includes in that list any subsidized any subsidization of unemployment via unemployment insurance or relief. And if you are, you know, my while I don't have a political affiliation now, and I certainly don't define myself as left, and I don't define myself as right, uh, I'm more a creature of the left in my past. Mm-hmm. And when I read that line from Rothbard, I'm saying, okay, so Rothbard is coming out against unemployment relief, like food stamps, uh, unemployment benefits. And when I read that, it um, it triggered the part of me that is that 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 used to be a left winger, really. And mm-hmm. it's like, is okay, so is Rothbard coming out against food stamps? Is he is he coming out against a social safety net? And it reminded me of this book that I read a couple years ago. It's called the Politics of Bitcoin, Software as Right-Wing Extremism. And I felt like it was a relevant book to mention because uh, I don't think the book is convincing. I don't think the points are salient in the book, but it's worth reading. And I think I think, as we, we've talked about the, these last chapters being about busting myths of the gold standard and, and at the same time, helping Bitcoiners be armed to deal with myths about Bitcoin. I think being prepared to encounter people who think of Bitcoin as some right-wing project, it's like a help to Bitcoiners. So it was helpful to me to read this book uh, just so that I'm more versed in what people who might falsely think of Bitcoin as a right-wing project might think. And it, and because it's aligned with thinking of Austrian economists like Rothbard, I mean, one thing that was surprising to me about the politics of Bitcoin, this, uh, book by David Columbia, who, by the way, the author died very recently. So I'm not trying to uh, um, dunk on someone who can't defend themselves anymore. But um, he talks about like he just identifies Rothbard and Hayek as right wing thinkers. And that is uh, I just don't. That doesn't feel right to me. I've been reading them for so long and that never once reading them did I think they're right wing, uh, but they're right wing policy institutes that like Cato, for example, that um, they like their ideas. And so that those ideas have filtered through the conservative establishment. And so now I guess they're considered part of the right wing political architecture. Yeah, Some of their ideas, right? Not, I don't think all of their ideas. I could be wrong about this, but I'm not sure that the Cato Institute is anti-central banking, for instance. Well, I wouldn't know. 
I wouldn't know. I think I, this is this book was this is honestly the book was the first time in my whole for all of this six or seven year rabbit hole. This is the first time I was informed by a third party that what I had been reading was right wing literature. <laughs> I just hadn't hadn't known. Yeah, yeah. We were we were talking about this offline, and I mean, my argument would be that genuine classical liberalism as in low to no statism, right? Low to no government. Mm -hmm. Let's try to, I mean, okay, to get real clear with our language, try to keep it focused on the state versus government because the argument here is that, okay, the state might not be necessary. You don't need this mafia, this coercive apparatus that's stealing funds from you, but you do need some governance structure, right? Some mutually agreed upon uh, terms. Homeowners associations, for instance, is a governance structure. So I'll try to use the word state instead of government, although people often interchange them. Um, It seems like true liberalism is orthogonal to left, the left, right dichotomy, because it's saying low to no state, right? And, and left, right orientation politically is a product of democracy, frankly, right? It's like, are you voting this way or that way? to steer mm-hmm. the the statist political apparatus. So I don't it doesn't make sense to me to say that oh these liberal thinkers like these people that advocate for individual life liberty and property um you know private property etc cetera, etc cetera, they're they're advocating for low to no state so to call them right wing thinkers I think doesn't make any sense even if the right wing has absorbed some of their ideas. I don't think that's fair to the the thinkers themselves and their motivations. Um, and on the point of relief programs like food stamps, I, this does sound like this strikes right at our our compassion circuitry, right? We have these intuitions for, to take care of people that don't have enough. Well, if people don't have food, let's why shouldn't the government give them some food? Why I'm sorry, why shouldn't the state give them some food? Mm-hmm. But the point of classical liberal thinkers. I believe not to speak for Rothbard, but he's saying that like, look, your these subsidies or these relief programs are being paid for via theft, right? They're being paid for with taxation and inflation, which are revenues to the state. There's a better safety net out there, right? Specifically, the safety net of if you remove state intervention in the marketplace, you increase aggregate wealth creation, which is like the ultimate safety net for everyone. Everyone has more savings, more wealth, more purchasing power. Um, And I believe classical liberal thinkers are advocating for that as the best means of ameliorating economic crises. Yeah. It's as if, it's as if they're, they're a view is so, yeah, I'm going to try and restate what you said in, in the way I perceive it, which is that, that, if if Rothbard is advocating is is saying that first of all, if he's saying that relief programs are the way in which a government can prolong a depression, he is not saying that relief programs are immoral, mm-hmm. and he's not even saying that he's against them. What mm-hmm. he's saying that is that this is one of the ways in which government intervention can prolong a depression. Yes, he's speaking to like how we make the problem worse with these interventions. Yes. And I think he's like just speaking to the economic reality as he sees it. But That's I think right. if you, if you take another step back and I love your, your use of the word of the compassion circuitry, what there's, there's um 
there's a false inference being made, which is that if, if Rothbard is saying that, if, if Rothbard is pointing out the mechanism whereby a depression is prolonged through relief programs, then you're making, you, you might be making a leap to saying that Rothbard doesn't like helping poor people. Mm. And that is what the right wing is all about. I, and I, I don't, I don't think number one or number two of those logical jumps are true. Yeah. But, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. But I, I, I would, I would say there's other ways to help people who are in crisis or in disadvantage other than through government stimulus programs. And so, but, it, but if you see government stimulus as the only way, and that's what I, where I, where I think that like, um, the left-wing view, as I've known it in the past, is somewhat limited. I think there's a lot more you can do for people in crisis than enact a government relief program mm. or state state sponsored relief program. Yeah, I think I mean I agree with you. Just to echo it back, he's making a purely economic argument, right? It's the state intervention in the marketplace that is prolonging or worsening the economic depression. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's an ethical argument that can be made that in certain extenuating circumstances, such relief programs are warranted. But I don't think you can ever escape the economic reality that they're funded by theft and theft reduces productivity. So it's like you're, it's like, it's almost like amputation or something, right? You're like, well, we need to do this really bad thing to prevent a worse thing from happening. And, um, I think the classical liberal position would be that um, there's very rare circumstances where you want to amputate to fix the problem that, you know, it's better to let the market sort of heal, right? Let the market reset, let prices come back to uh, their truthful state where supply and demand actually meet. Um, this is the same thing we're saying with unemployment as well, right? When you have minimum wage, you basically have a price floor. So Mises, I think it was Mises, called that institutional unemployment. That if you want to have zero unemployment, you actually have to have no minimum wage because you need to let the supply and demand for labor clear wherever it clears. So all of these political coercive interventions are what is distorting the economic outcomes we would find desirable, like zero unemployment, um, maximum productivity, et cetera. And 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 who's to say that you know that the 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 classical I think Austrian view is that one of the silver linings at least Rothbard's view one of the silver linings to a depression is that prices fall and so your savings have more purchasing power mm -hmm. and that to me is a compassionate view mm -hmm. is that you're advocating for a way to help people with little to no savings is if prices fall far enough those people become wealthier. Um, there's a framing that I love that like for all of this, that kind of helped me, it helped me sort of escape the, 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 the left, right maze that I was stuck in, which is from sovereign individual. And they frame it as if you look at who controls government, um, there's like a few different models for who controls government. There's a proprietor controlled, customer controlled, or employee controlled. And this, uh, I'll just read this for this is from a sovereign individual. But it says it's easy to characterize the incentives that prevail for governments controlled by their employees. They would be similar incentives in other employee controlled inter organizations. First and foremost, 
employee-run organizations tend to favor any policy that increases employment and opposes measures which reduce jobs. Um, and then a lot of a lot of their book, uh, Sovereign Individuals, based on this writing by Frederick C. Lane about mm -hmm. the economics of uh, organized violence. But mm -hmm. as Lane put it, when employees as a whole controlled an organization, they had little interest in minimizing the amounts exacted for protection and none, no interest in minimizing the large part of costs represented by labor costs, which was their own salaries. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about the terms under which industrial democracies have operated, it's more logical to treat them as a form of government controlled by their employees. Uh, but then you may be saying that in most jurisdictions, there are many more voters than there are persons on the government payroll. How could it be possible for employees to dominate under such conditions? The welfare state emerged to answer exactly this quandary. Since there were not otherwise enough employees to create a working voting majority, increasing numbers of voters were effectively put on the payroll to receive transfer payments of all kinds. In effect, the recipients of transfer payments and subsidies became pseudo-government employees who were able mm. to dispense with the bother of reporting to work every day. It was a result directed by the mega-political logic of the industrial age. Mm. So you can look at, through this lens, you can look at what is fiscally of the left can be characterized as any political ideology in favor of the employees of government. And what is fiscally right is that which maybe diminishes the number of employees mm -hmm. on the government mm -hmm. payroll. But uh, I don't I don't think Bitcoin falls under any of the Bitcoin. Doesn't help either of those camps. Yeah, well, that framing perhaps could put Bitcoin as a right wing thing <laughs> well, and hear me out i agree with you first of all um but the fact that bitcoin makes it more difficult for the state to raise revenues or to mm -hmm. even maintain revenues sort of forces the state to necessarily lower its payroll right so if you're if we're mm -hmm. saying that the right wing concern or orientation is to to reduce government payroll then if you're framing it that way then i would say you could frame bitcoin as a right-wing thing but i would still go back to the earlier comment of it's more about liberalism in general right it's actually shrinking the state which is something that's orthogonal to the left right dichotomy i agree i i, I agree i think this whole it's like i'm already it's like once, once, whenever we get into this, but the reason why I said it's such a tightrope is that like, whenever we get into it, I get lost because I'm like, well, yeah. right wing isn't, I don't know if that really, I mean, even though I characterized it that way a minute ago, I don't, I don't really generally think right wing is about making the state smaller. I think, I think yeah. everyone who's interested in gaining power through politics yeah. is just interested in owning the process right. and owning the spoils of that process and making it larger and more profitable for them and their friends. Generally, yeah, that's what it's come to. Uh, Javier Malay has sort of clarified this a bit, right? That he's he's he identifies as an anarcho-capitalist, so he's sort of stepping out of the left-right dichotomy and saying, "No, it's the central bank and the state, inflation, taxation. That's the problem. I want to reduce that." And so I would say that Bitcoin fits more in that framing. Perhaps it's more of like an anarcho-capitalistic technology. Mm -hmm than it is left or right, in my opinion. I would just encourage Bitcoiners to 
go down this path somewhat in their own mind so that they're prepared mentally. I think you just want to be ready for this criticism. And I mean, I had a good friend, uh, a, a, a good friend, a long-term friend who messaged me about this uh, a few months ago. And he's like, yeah, but isn't Bitcoin like a right-wing thing? And I said, here's a book that lays out the case very clearly. I've read the book. The book doesn't make sense. And I can refute most of the points in the book if you care to go have coffee. And just being able, and I sent him a photo of the book. It's on my bookshelf. Yeah. I think just being able to do that kind of like it was, it sort of ended the conversation. So, you know, I, I just think we as Bitcoiners need to be prepared to have that conversation. Yeah. The other, um, other thing maybe just worth mentioning here is when you say something like, and I, I realize I just said this, so I might be calling myself dumb in a way, but when we say something like Bitcoin is a right, what is the quote? It's Bitcoin is a uh, right wing extremist technology. Is that what the cover of the book? Yeah. I'll just, the title is, uh, is um, the politics of Bitcoin software as right wing extremism. Okay. Software as right wing extremism. It's useful to remember that software is just language, right? So it's like equivalent to saying English as right-wing extremism or Japanese as left-wing extremism or mm -hmm. anything. It, it just doesn't I, – I think it's kind of a category error in thinking. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. That We're talking about a language here, right? This well, thing – Bitcoin doesn't have actual political leanings. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit. Bitcoin doesn't care. It does not give a shit. Here, here's, yeah. here's a here, – I'm going to try and illustrate what you just said through a quote from the book. Here's a, a quote from the, the book. It says, the, the point is much less that Bitcoin is attractive to those on the right than it is that Bitcoin and the blockchain themselves depend on right-wing assumptions – as if they could be separated from the context in which they are generated. Absent an awareness of that context, Bitcoin serves, like much right-wing rhetoric, to spread and firmly root a politics, part of whose method is to obscure its material and social functions. So saying that the, the whole methodology of the right of right-wing is to like supplant these ideas, plant these ideas into the discourse, but hide their origin, and then the ideas become valuable and and you perpetuate the ideas because they're good ideas and you forget that they came from the right wing. It's, yeah. uh, it's sort of an, un, it's an, it's one of those, like, what's it called? An unprovable, an un, unfalsifiable counterfactual. Un, unfalsifiable. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so not only is it that it's like, um, but try reading that same paragraph and you like substitute with the word gold. It would read like this. The point is much less that gold is attractive to those on the right than right. it is that gold depends on right-wing assumptions. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make yeah, sense. Right. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And and I think that's when you start to look at Bitcoin more in the realm of a... Uh, um, it's neutrality, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a, yeah. It's a, a, it's a, new, it's a new, neutral metal. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't depend on right-wing assumptions. It's just... Yes. Uh, Okay. Yeah. So look, that's a great framing, by the way. It's yeah. Like the, the rising and setting sun, the chemical composition of gold, Bitcoin, like these things don't, they just don't care about human yeah. politics. Basically. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers, 36,000, 25 and one 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I think what we can say, and this gets us back on track, is that the, the, the boom, the, what happened in the 1920s was not the result of unfettered capitalism. Hmm. You know, that's that's like kind of where where these these myths become valuable to people is they say, well, we know what happens when capitalism run, runs amok, you get yeah. boom and bust cycle. And so you need a central bank to smooth all that out. So these myths serve the current existing power structure. Which is a crazy um, version, right? Like the central bank is what creates the boom and bust business cycle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they create it. Um, you know, this whole like maintenance of the stable price level that's what, in essence, that's what central banks have been doing ever since they were started. If you go back to the Central Bank of England in the late 1800s, I know that bank is much older. They began then as an organization trying to maintain a stable price level. The only the only difference is that at that time, the only price stability they were trying to achieve was the, the price of pounds priced in gold, mm. British pound sterling relative to gold, not like this thing called CPI. So now fast forward hundred years, you have, they've expanded the remit of this, the, the, the stable price level thing, but it's this concept of a basket of goods, which came out of the twenties. And now there's this whole mythology built around stable price level. And it's totally gotten out of hand. It's led to all mm. the, I mean, everything we're going through today is because of this concept of maintaining a stable stable price level and you know per the Jeff Booth thesis this gets harder and harder to do as technology 
tries to drive prices down. And that's what that's what this whole last episode was. And that's where we've ended. And again, it sort of speaks to this political statement, which is that 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 the political implications of what Rothbard said, which is the more you intervene to keep prices up, whether it's wages, food prices, whatever, you do make the problem worse. That mm-hmm. that 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 will be your understanding of how the system fails when you intervene to try and maintain prices artificially. And it, you know, it led me to, I mean, this is something you and I talked about episodes and episodes ago, which is that is price stability even something that exists in nature? Like what, what is the, if you think about like, what is price stability? Is it calorie? Is there a constant caloric price for obtaining a good like food? I don't think price stability is a thing. Price stability is just whatever is at the the leading edge of cal- caloric efficiency. And then humans, you know, sailor in the most elegant and comprehensive way went through this with you in your first mm-hmm. episode that humans, the, the story of human history is achieving more and more wealth through less and less caloric expenditure. Mm-hmm. That's all we've been trying to do. Yeah. And that is essentially why we're failing at keeping prices stable because it's 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 human nature to try and actually lower prices continually if you think of what price truly is yeah i mean I, there's there's a complicated territory but i think one way to try and simplify is you could say the price is an indication of how difficult it is to solve a problem or satisfy a want right like the cost of a chair well mm-hmm. someone wants to sit down comfortably at their desk if it's a hundred dollars, then it requires so much human energy, sacrifice, et cetera. If innovation drives it down to twenty dollars, then it that problem is solved more efficiently or less costly. So that's the point. That's the point of economizing is to lower prices. So this entire fiat world that we live in that's premised on prices going up forever which is really just an excuse to, to print money, right? To have a, a centrally planned money supply. It's the in, it's an inversion. It's an inversion of what an economy is actually intended to do. It is. It's, it's, so, it's trying to create the opposite of an economy. Exactly. It's a diseconomy. Exactly. The, the last myth that we'll cover, and I, and I feel like we've mostly covered it, is that um, the gold shortage somehow caused the depression, which is something that I had heard without hearing explained why. Um, but both, again, there are a lot of these things that both Pally and Rothbart try, they both cover them in in their books. Um, and I don't really know how you could listen to the last episode and somehow think that a gold shortage caused the depression when we talked in detail how abuse of the credit system and a buildup of credit to create to create a false prosperity mm-hmm. was the cause of the depression but it's worth pointing out that the there was a, a a small almost negligible increase in the gold supply from 1921 to 29 from 2.6 billion dollars worth of bitcoin or, or bill of, of gold 2.6 billion dollars to 3 billion uh 15% increase in gold supply uh, now the money supply increased in that time period 61.8%, but it didn't 
increase in the form of circulating cash, uh, currency in circulation actually went down during the boom of the 20s. Um, it was 3.68 billion at the beginning and then 3.64 billion at the end. The entire inflation of the money supply took place in the form of money substitutes, aka, you know, like checking accounts, savings accounts, time deposits. And those are the products of the credit expansion. Hmm. The, the money substitutes are what you get through the creation of a new loan, not new cash. And so from that fact alone, you can see that uh, uh, the, the, the small influx of gold into the U.S. And the U.S. did get gold, but that didn't cause the inflation. So I'm going to read a Palu quote on this. He says, at the end of 1929, legally required monetary reserves amounted to $6.95 billion, whereas total central bank plus foreign exchange reserves amounted to $14.7 billion. So whatever else was wrong with the monetary system of the 1920s, there was no absolute shortage of gold. In fact, as late as 1929, there was ample margin for available for further credit expansion and to take care of gold's function as a buffer against the pressure of normal payments disequilibria. No shortage of gold, but an excess of gold was the worry of the federal authorities before the crisis of 1929, namely the fear of inflationary repercussions. A similar situation existed in France, Holland, and Switzerland, and members of the gold bloc after 1926. Actually, the large reserve in the United States contributed significantly to the boom psychology. It helped to generate a misleading sense of financial security and promoted the expansion of a debt structure, which was to collapse in the Depression. It is an economic myth frozen to a dogma that the long waves of price level fluctuations under the gold standard have been determined solely or mainly by the ups and downs of gold production. Critics have used this dogma to discredit the gold standard as an inherently unstable system. Suffice it to remark that determining monetary that the determining monetary factor in major price level changes was the use and abuse of credit rather than changes in the volume of gold reserves. That's a massive passage uh, that just obliterates so much Keynesian nonsense that I see on Bitcoin Twitter all the time. People always going back to, oh, gold caused the Great Depression. I'm like, here it is. Just absolutely annihilating that entire idea. And who benefits from perpetuating the myth that gold caused the Great Depression? It's the overseers of the fiat system that has yeah, divorced free, itself from gold. The free market works in every market in the world except money. We need to centrally plan that one because the free market blew up with gold. It brings me back to that, you know, I, I mentioned that conversation I got in with that aerospace engineer who was who had, yeah. had just been taught that having a money that appreciates in value is somehow detrimental to society. And that he it was like his duty as a as an American or as a citizen, as a as a as a humanitarian, compassionate person, to use a money which loses value, that he had to do that for the betterment of everybody. And I I think this myth that gold caused the depression is like so hugely instrumental in perpetuating the myth that you can't hold a money that holds its value, because right. look what happens: the depression happens if you right. do that. This also gets into the whole savings versus hoarding. 
Oh, man. You're like, oh, if you just have gold, then there's no incentive to invest and everyone just holds money and everything goes away, which I think is part of the argument of the guy you just mentioned. It's like, has anyone actually thought about that for more than five minutes? <laughs> like, you're just going to sit in your house with your gold and not eat. Well, you're not even going to have a house, right? Because you sold yeah, your right, house for right. gold. You're just going right. to sit outside with your gold and not eat, not want shelter, not want to do anything, just hold the gold. It's just so unbelievably nonsensical. I think like if you think about, if you believe in this idea that gold somehow bound the hands of the banking establishment during the depression and that that's what caused the depression or kept the depression going, then whether you're aware of it or not, you're operating under two misapprehensions. One is you're you're assuming that prices cannot adjust downward, mm -hmm. that like that 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 was somehow would be a cataclysmic, and then number two, that the answer to keeping prices high, which you assume is necessary, is more lending and more credit. Because if if you think that gold inhibited all of that. The only thing that gold could potentially do, it could keep you from creating infinite credit if the monetary base is limited. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I would I would posit that prices can and should be able to adjust downward. And I would also say that I don't think the answer to a depression is infinite lending and infinite credit. Yeah. Uh... But 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 even still, I would say. Even even if you, um, you you have to go one further, and and if you understand what happened during the twenties, you actually realize that, despite there not being an infinite supply of gold, the Fed was still able to engineer near infinite credit, anyways. So mm. the ability for credit expansion is there whether you have the gold or not. But did it lead to an unlimited eternal prosperity just because they found ways to engineer credit? No. It it doesn't. So um if you're if you're gonna say that gold kept the banks or the central bank with tie if gold ties the hands of the central bank, then um you're ignoring the fact that it doesn't, and you're also somehow claiming that credit expansion forever is possible and would lead to unbridled prosperity forever. And that just doesn't, it's not true. Absolutely. Um, to try and say it simply, uh, I mean, it, if the credit expansion doesn't expand productivity more than the interest that's being paid on the associated debt, right? Because a credit obviously has a, the flip side of a credit is a debt, then it's not going to work, right? If, if there's, it, this is like back to uh, the the thing, the trope you commonly see on Bitcoin Twitter, where does the yield come from, mm -hmm. right? If it's, if the, if the credit is not, the capital being lent is not being invested in a way that actually increases productivity and generates a yield, then there's nothing to pay the interest with. And so infinite credit creation is not going to do it. It's just not going to cut it, right? It's you're, it just doesn't work. I don't, I mean, uh, 
trying to simplify it here, but I guess I'm struggling a little bit. The idea that you just need more credit to fix the thing is nonsense, right? You need yeah. more savings. You need more yeah, capital. Yeah. You need more stuff. Mm -hmm. Just like you don't need more money supply. You need more purchasing power. So there's this whole like deception that occurs between what we call a thing and what a thing actually is that is uh, miraculously effective at deceiving people. It goes back to this like reason why I spent so much time on trying to tear down the concept that interest is the price of money because it, if money is, is the most important thing in an economy and it's not wealth and, and real wealth is the most important thing. But if the central bank becomes like the sole client of the economy and the sole purchaser, mm -hmm. and the only thing they can make is money and they control the price of the money, then they must be the most, most important organization on the planet. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I think all of these things have helped um, steer people's eyes away from seeing that the money is broken. And again, that's why two people working middle-class jobs in a big city like Los Angeles can't afford a house. I think I want to get into like my final takeaways from this whole experience of this book. My whole... what. My big takeaway from this whole experience of Twilight of Gold is that, and this is what how I tell people if I'm if I'm launching into this whole topic with them to begin with, I'll say that something happened in the 20s and there's a big shift. The monetary system shifted over. Uh it shifted over from England to America. The world reserve currency shifted from British pounds to dollars, it, the shift began and it happened slowly and it didn't culminate until after World War II. But the undoing began in the 20s. And the credit bubble, the 100-year credit cycle that we're experiencing now, basically began the day that World War I broke out. And, I, and, and the 2020s, there's so many similarities in the 2020s between the 1920s. And I tell people, I think that we're on the verge of another massive shift in the monetary system and what we call money and what's the dominant money and savings technology for the world. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the amount of the ways in which this period of time mirrors those are very interesting. And so that's kind of what we've been building to is this, this list. We'll talk now about things that are the same and things that are different. First, we'll talk about what's the same because that list is longer um one thing that that i just didn't know until we started this is that this suffering through like psychologically wavering between inflation and deflation you're like on a knife's edge is it inflation the fact that there's such a debate that that was one of the defining the one of the defining attributes of the period of the 1920s Mm -hmm. And this is what Pally says, the faith in the self-equilibrating forces of the economy and the belief in the ability of the individual to shape his own destiny had been severely shaken by the cataclysmic events of the war and the immediate post-war years. The acute inflation-deflation cycle occurring as it did within the short span of three of four years 
produced both a traumatic shock and a widespread demand on both sides of the Atlantic for greater economic stability. If governments could raise and spend billions to finance the war, why should they not be able to use their power to assure greater pos greater po po prosperity for all? Quite imperceptibly, the emphasis of monetary policy shifted from protecting international stability to an attempt to assure domestic prosperity, mm. which is which, you know, by implication, he's not saying this, but that's just impossible. You can't assure mm. domestic prosperity through monetary policy. And yet we have kind of thought that we could for a long time yeah. and that that originated in the 1920s and is being repeated now should be a warning sign. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, I the so the subtlety here is we we have used monetary policy in the U.S. to export inflation abroad, right? So, 330 million citizens of the U.S. We have four and a half billion users of dollars or euro dollars worldwide, so we're exporting that inflation. So you could say that monetary policy has been used to increase domestic prosperity, but it's through a, a mechanism of confiscation. Um, the, the whole idea that, I don't know, I guess you get people really, as he says here, down and out about the ability to control their own destiny. And then they see the government raising huge sums of money to go to war through money printing, monetary policy. Then they say, oh, well, if you've used this mechanism for that marvel, can't you use it for, you know, something that destructive? Can't you use it for yeah. something productive? Yeah. And unfortunately, no, that, you know, theft actually always decreases productivity. But um, if you can keep people in, in the uh, deceived about it, uh, mystified by it, right? That printing mm -hmm. money is somehow not theft or it's somehow stimulative to the economy or necessary to make the economy work, then you can just keep this shell game going for a really, really long time. And, I think it's uh, really significant, his line, that people lost faith in the self-equilibrating forces of the economy. Mm -hmm. I think going into COVID- That's the free market. I mean, no one, no one, no one went into COVID thinking, oh gosh, uh, well, we'll shut down the businesses, but- um, and then there will be a massive correction in prices mm -hmm. because uh, no one will have any money left. They were like, no, we'll have to flood it with extra money. Yeah. It's um, the scale at which there was no faith in the self-equilibrating forces of the economy is kind of, it's so blinding that I'm reminded of, um, uh, I have a, a, a a good friend who was listening to this whole series and is trying to contemplate the implications of Bitcoin. And he said something so fascinating to me. He said, sometimes when I close my eyes, you know, when you close your eyes and look at the inside of your eyelid, mm -hmm. it's the largest thing you'll ever see because it takes up your whole field of view. And Bitcoin is like that. He's like, if I think about it hard enough, it's actually the largest thing I've ever seen. And it, it overwhelms me. That's, that's fantastic. And that the scale at which there was a loss of faith in the self-equilibrating force of the economy just reminds me of, 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 of like 
I can't even express how large the whole COVID process was yeah. in expressing that loss of faith. I'm reminded of the people during COVID hoarding, I don't even like to use the word, stockpiling toilet paper. Mm -hmm. And then people thought that it was okay for the government to go and like, you know, coerce those people. Like, that's not all right, you know, spread some of the wealth. So there's a there's a lack of faith in the self-equilibriating forces of the marketplace, right? Like what would really happen is if, well, if toilet paper were in short supply and a bunch of people stockpiled it, well, then the price would rise and it would cause them to sell it, right? Just let the market sort of clear itself. Mm -hmm. You don't need coercive intervention to fix that. I'm also reminded of the saving and hoarding, uh, which we talked about earlier. It's like if if there's inadequate liquidity in the marketplace, well, then the demand for loanable funds goes up and up and up along with it, the interest rate. And so that will induce lenders to come to the market and, and, yeah. and resolve mm -hmm. the liquidity shortage. So this whole idea that somehow hoarding money will seize up the economy, like it, it betrays this deep lack of faith in the self-equilibrating nature of a free market. Yeah, I'm sure that the, um, the, the, the best cure for high prices is high prices. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, here's another similarity. He writes, the Powell, writes, the fiscal chaos created by World War I called for deflation in order to correct for incentives distorted by inflation and to restrain speculative excesses and restore the rational pattern of international trade. And that's just what happened with COVID. I mean, that's what we were on our way there, but COVID, COVID this is a, I should have led with this. The similarities between COVID and World War I are like, uh, it, they they both dramatically accelerated the role of the the the, the dilemma of the central bank and the role of the mm -hmm. central bank. I mm -hmm. guess the difference is in and we talked about this last episode is that World War One is when we sort of discovered that accelerating the process whereby a central bank manipulates interest rates so that they could monetize government debt was begun in World War One, mm -hmm. and it came to its rational conclusion during COVID because COVID pushed the debt to GDP ratio so high that we are now uh, in the end game. But it was this the, the fiscal chaos created by both World War I and COVID that make these periods weirdly similar. Another, another similarity is that living standards, I mean, this sort of gets back to what you're saying before, living standards have actually risen and it is through global credit inflation. So you're talking about there was, this is like 10 minutes ago, that, that there was, we did have an advantage, that there was some benefit to this massive, to exporting our inflation and we did benefit from it. And that is what happened in the twenties. There was a massive credit inflation and it was, it, it, it was engineered on the back of, uh, um, of a true increase in, uh, productivity, um, which is where the real standard of living increased, but the credit inflation made people feel wealthy. Mm. Um, and then Pally writes about that period, which again reminds me of this period. The situation was characterized by an unprecedented orgy of extravagance, a mania for speculation, 
overextended business in nearly all lines and in every section of the country and general demoralization of the agencies of production and distribution. When you think about overextended businesses in nearly all lines, I think of house flipping shows and Mm -hmm. then which begat house flipping show channels. House house flipping, the house flipping industry to me is the single greatest symptom of an overextended credit inflation. Mm -hmm. Nothing more seems it's like a, a sickness to me. Yeah, the monetization of durable consumer goods. And yeah. Everyone thinks, oh, a house goes up in price because it's just it's a savings account. But the reality is, no, it's a durable consumer good. It should be depreciating year over year, mm-hmm. right? Relative to the purchasing power of your money. But we've been hypnotized into believing that house prices just go up. I mean, I could go, I, like sometimes I'll say totally. And what I mean is I could do an hour on that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I just am like, yeah. well, I'll say it's, we got to move, move on. Yeah, it's just bizarre. It's just bizarre. I don't know, like to see so many people thinking in one pattern and then to be able to trace that straight to the money. Like, wow, there is a major psychological implication to the manipulation of money. Right. As you just said, the house flipping channels, shows, craze, et cetera. Um, it, it, it blows my mind how much. How impactful the central planning of money can be on human psychology. And, you know, they it's not accidental. The housing industry is like, I think, 25 percent of the economy. So it's the it's it's um it, for the consumer. It's the biggest source of credit inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, businesses use credit more than consumers do. But but for consumers, it's been. Uh, and, I, and I don't know, I, I don't know what I think of real estate. Because I. I can't say that this won't continue. I think it's it's politically impossible for house prices to go down. If house prices start going down nationwide, I think it would be so destabilizing. I feel like they have to figure out a way for house prices to go up in nominal terms. They're bound. Yes. And then also, if I'm thinking through the eyes of the state, uh, real estate is the well, it's impossible to conceal, basically, and it's the e- therefore the easiest to tax asset. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you have it going up in nominal pricing, pricing all the time, and you, you're incentivizing all of this flipping and monetization of the asset class, all of that benefits the tax base of the state. Here's another similarity. Okay, so the crisis, the the monetary crisis of the depression, brought about like the first in history, deliberate peacetime act of devaluation, which was Roosevelt in 33. The dollar was, there was no run happening on the dollar. The dollar was fine. The dollar was strong. And we had a massive concentration of gold. So we weren't like about to default on the dollar. You know, um, England devalued devalued, uh, the pound because there was a run on the pound and they were running out of gold. We had plenty of gold. So why did Roosevelt reprice the dollar? It was an arbitrary act of financial engineering only for polit- solely for political objectives. And its 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 objective was to to raise prices and it didn't really work. I mean prices went up 2 and 3%, but unemployment wasn't solved not until World War II. And that is so similar to what in fact that was like the first time it happened and now deliberate acts of financial engineering that's all, that's all we have 
Mm. That's kind of like mm. the only tool in the toolkit at this point. Um, Roosevelt had a, he had this press conference in uh, April of 33. He said, the whole problem before us is to raise commodity prices. And um, so, I, you know, you may so backwards, by the way, like again, <laughs> yeah. this economy, this economy. <laughs> yes. Um, so you could hear that and think, uh, well, it's the opposite because now they're trying to raise prices less fast. You know, they're trying to control inflation. And so maybe it's like should be in the differences column. But it's obvious I put it in the similarities column problem because it's just it's the politicis it's the overall politicization of the price level. Mm-hmm. And um it just doesn't it doesn't work because once you engage in competitive devaluations of your currency, you're doing something that that actually gives you zero advantage because any country can do it. Like there's no there's no special technology that you have that allows you to devalue faster or more effectively right. than another country. So they all just devalue in in lockstep. Mm-hmm. Or they do trade 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 restrictions, tariff whatever, whatever you whatever advantage you get from a currency devaluation, a tariff just takes it back, just mm-hmm. undoes it. So I think I think that that is a huge similarity where it, that was like the invention of financial engineering of the currency. And now we are stuck with that as kind of the only thing we can do. We're at the zenith of that. This is an there's another interesting similarity with this is a potential one that I see, which is that there's a, a potential future where supplies of finished goods or commodities are stockpiled locally and we see a ton of overproduction because of all the supply chain shocks and this like reshoring effort it's exactly what happened in world war one before world war one there was a global um distribution of uh um what's it called there's like a division of labor where every country sort of did the thing they were good at and then in world war one everyone's like well uh poland might be good at making coal and England might be sort of good at making coal, but we'll just have to make all our own coal because we can't buy it from our enemies. Mm. So there's this forced reshoring. And I think we might see the same thing, which would be inflationary. It would also mm. probably lead to a a surplus of all those things. It's like isolationism would, or something. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, industrial advantages of the 20s, uh, the industrial advances, I mean, um, led to all of these huge production milestones. And so uh, you could reduce costs um, and pay higher wages and not raise prices because because co- cost uh, input input costs got so low. So I think we're gonna see something similar now with work from home. AI, I think there's going to be a similar mechanism for cloaking inflation mm. as cost lower for certain things. I think that's another, I, I think there will be maybe not soon enough, but I think that there will be another massive increase in productivity that will give um, give governments an excuse to print. The only difference is that uh, the, 
advances of the 20s, they pretty much all still in, involved labor and, and and the expansion of labor. Uh, the one, you know, a- AI will probably lead to more unemployment and more of a de- more of a need to print money. Um, but I think that that we could see similar productivity increases somehow. Um, I would say one of the biggest similarities is the the vulnerability that England suffered because of their ha- having their role of as the world reserve currency. So we had mentioned this before that from like 1854 to 1914, Britain they had a um, they did have a fav- favorable balance of trade, but merchandise trades would neg- trade was negative. So to make up for that imbalance of a negative merchandise trade, it was made up for by income from uh, non-merchandise oriented industries like shipping, warehouse, insurance, and banking. And those industries were totally dependent on London's position as international center of finance. And so what I'm saying is they were totally financialized or their advantage, their, their advantage was because of the financialization of their economy. So mm. that is the huge similarity to the position that we're in now. Mm. Um, financialization, it 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 puts the highest premium on people perceiving the currency as valuable. And so that actually becomes a liability as much as it's an advantage. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a... Very, very cool essay by Matthew Pines um, called From Wait, uh, um, Great The Great Power Network Competition. And he talks about ways in which the, owning the monetary network for the US has become a liability. Um, mm. Number one, uh, it's led to our central bank, the Fed. It's become has become the marginal and and eventually probably the primary source of financing to the government, and that is a liability because it leads to inflation. Um, it also means that instability requires ever larger and larger intervention, mm-hmm. and so then the Fed becomes the market maker of last resort to the treasury market, which makes which puts them in an outsized position of influence and it makes the government dependent on the Fed to monetize the debt. Mm -hmm. Um, This is number three on his list. Uh, The global dollar system, including the Euro dollar and shadow banking system becomes dependent on the Fed as the global, global lender of last resort, including two foreign adversaries. And he, he talks about how, China has a way to access Fed swap lines, even though they don't directly have a Fed swap line. So, and that leads directly to number four, which is the global dollar system has been cleverly exploited by the US's principal adversaries, namely China, to finance its own ambitions. And there's like a lot of really good writing on how China recycles dollars um, either to invest in US assets or to, to fund projects abroad that, that where, where China is actually investing in real wealth, ports, mm. oil, 
abroad. So they're using the dollar system now to their own advantage. And we can't really stop it because it would mean undoing the dollar system itself. Mm. Um, number five is that the, uh, uh, the, the fire and tech sectors have benefited at the expense of manufacturing. Um, they, they've ex benefited the tech sector at the expense of manufacturing. And they have led this to this hourglass economy where, um, Oh, I'll just read from, what Pines wrote. He says, the US economy has evolved over decades to structurally absorb global surpluses by selling off its scarce and desirable assets to foreign investors, including major adversaries. This has greatly benefited the technology and finance, insurance, and real estate sectors who exist to create investable securities to help direct foreign dollar surpluses into them via opaque tax-sheltered offshore structures. The U.S. is the money laundering capital of the world. In hindsight, we can see a correlation between the systemic effect of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency and the structural in increase in income inequality, the rise of political populism, and the estrangement of working classes, all of which undermine trust in legacy governing institutions and civic trust. So this is, it's this recycling of dollars into U.S. assets that, mm. that, that exacerbates political instabilities and starts to actually create the the political unrest that we're seeing today so that's mm. i mean you know i've i've long felt that like our the dollar everyone's like oh but the dollars reserve currency that's why it's people who are critics of the de-dollarization th thesis mm. point to the pervasiveness of the dollar as as like self-evident as to why de-dollarization can never happen and i've always had this feeling that 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 was becoming a liability as well as a Anyways, what I'm trying to say is Pines delineates all the ways in which it is a problem and not just an uh, um, an unqualified advantage. Yeah, it's uh, what the French call it the exorbitant privilege, but um, other yeah. other people too have written about this, how it's also, it carries with it many disadvantages. Um, I, another one, which I didn't see, I guess it's sort of, Actually, this is the next one, the atrophy of the industrial base, mm -hmm. right? The fact that we have to offshore our industrial base, essentially, because um, dollar inflation, domestic dollar inflation makes labor so high and makes foreign labor so cheap that in industrial um, capacity just moves offshore. And that makes yeah, us I mean, very as, dependent on other countries, obviously. Totally. As Luke Groman says, we'll have to buy parts from China to fight China. Exactly. That doesn't work. <laughs> One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove.
Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating Lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment routes, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. I already said this. I've probably said this one in every other section that it's a crisis fueled by a debt bubble. That's just a, a similarity. Um, this passage, I think about this one a lot. Uh, this is from The Dying of Money. Speculation alone, while adding nothing to Germany's wealth, became one of its largest activities. The fever to join in turning a quick mark infected nearly all classes and the effort to extend the effort extended in simply buying and selling the paper titles to wealth was enormous. Everyone from the elevator operator up was playing the market. To say that millions of non-productive jobs in the inflation were useless is not to say that their holders were useless. Exactly the opposite is true. Many of these jobs were among the system's better paid jobs, and their holders tended to be among the nation's better men. People are not at fault in doing useless work. They merely go where the rewards are, and government's inflationary forces are what place the rewards. It is a tragic fact that millions of the nation's best people were led by the government's stimulus to invest their lives in pursuits that perhaps should not have that perhaps should not have enlisted them and which might well not exist whenever the government's inflation ended or fell apart. Um so good. I mean, I think about that. I think about that. <clears throat> not only do I think about it like you think about all the people with um engineering degrees who go work on wall street mm. or i mean me you i mm. mean uh where have we put all of our energy and thought into essentially becoming obsessed with bitcoin going into bitcoin being on the get on zero movement holding bitcoin you have put your energy into a massive currency speculation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something sad about that because I'm not putting my time into inventing um, a way to pull water from the atmosphere. You know, something right. that would like, so, um, and you're forced, you're actually forced into this because if you don't, if you don't engage in currency speculation, then you will be at a massive disadvantage. And and I fought this and fought this and fought this. And it's only in the last year or two that I've been like, no, this is this is essentially what I'm trying subtly what I'm trying to tell people. If I if I try and convince them that Bitcoin is valuable, the message I don't say is I'm trying to encourage you to become a currency speculator. Because that's where it's at right now. 
Man, it's so good. I this point came up for me earlier when you were talking about all of the the acts of financial engineering. I think you were saying one of the I forget which president it was was saying our entire aim was to increase commodity prices. Yeah, Roosevelt. And if you just fathom like how much human time is actually wasted in all of that, this financial engineering, because it's non-productive, right? It's not it's not increasing anything real. You're not creating any more useful goods or services or capital goods, nothing. You're just reshuffling the you're reshuffling the the supply and demand or the the lending and borrowing structure, basically. And you know, all that time that's that's being allocated into financial engineering, if we didn't have this screwed up system it, sort of inducing all of us to do that well we would if we just had a sound money say a bitcoin monetary standard we'd all be doing something productive right we'd be farming or building or trading goods something um and so it's interesting this passage is really good because it's saying that you know this speculative fervor that gets driven, right? Just the 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 effort expended, what do you say, on simply buying and selling the paper titles to wealth. That people just get engaged in this this shell game effectively. But what's weird is that we we are, as you said, we are part of that, right? Because we yeah. are in you're we're part of a speculative fervor called Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not like we're it's Speculative fervor for Bitcoin sounds bad. It sounds like, oh, it is a Ponzi scheme. You're just trying to get rich quick. It's like, not really. You're kind of forced into it because the system behind you is being burnt down. Yeah. So you've identified the sound system that you're moving into, but it's still a speculation in the sense that you're saying, okay, this one's, this system is collapsing. This one is uncollapsible. Effectively, I'm going to get on board this ship first. First one on the ship gets more purchasing power, basically. And it's, um, I, I don't know. It, yeah, you don't want to say that. You don't want to tell your friends that they're part of a currency speculation, but you definitely are in some sense. And I also think there's a there's a bit of sadness here in that Bitcoin is such a radical proposition because that tells you how awash our world is in bullshit, right? We're just saying like, oh, you should just be able to have savings that no one can steal. And that's Radical. just like the easiest, like simplest thing. It's like the most basic economic, you know, grandma's wisdom 101, like save your money. That's all Bitcoin is really saying. Like, yeah, here's some money that you can actually save that won't steal from you. And the fact that that's such a radical idea in this world tells me more about the world than it does about Bitcoin. The, the greatest gift Bitcoin could ever give me is that one day I could just forget about Bitcoin. Because I don't want to be doing all this, honestly. I I don't I don't I kind of don't care about anything that we're talking about, but I have to. I've become you know, my my survival is dependent on it. And it's so easy to undo all the years of waiting. I mean, I could just sell everything like with a mouse click. It'd be like so easy to just get out and just do something else. But you have to stay involved psychologically and intellectually so that you understand why this trade is important. Mm. But I don't want to spend my life thinking about this stuff. I don't really want to spend another year thinking about it. 
Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. That's a great way to put it, though. The greatest gift Bitcoin could give you is to stop thinking about Bitcoin. Yeah, and I'd say the last the last big similarity between the twenties and now is that banks are being consolidated into fewer, larger, dominant players, which is something that you pointed out in the last mm. episode. Yeah. Okay, differences. Differences between the 1920s and the 2020s. Credit bubble in the 1920s was households and corporations. Now it's the government. That's a big difference. Mm. It makes this. It makes the outcome here um, more unpredictable in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it makes the stakes higher for the government to keep it going longer. And maybe they can. Um, probably, probably a little more dire too when governments are desperate versus when households and corporations are desperate. Mm-hmm. Um, another difference is that there was really no reliable data for everyone to look at in the twenties. Um, so there was like a lot of like rumor and what, what's the word on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and England had very little in the way of regulation on banks other than the broad outlines of the currency emission scheme they had. So we just have a ton of surveillance and everyone's tapped in. And I don't know how that is a big difference. And it's a, it's making everyone act different. My gut is that the, the, the expression of that difference is that it's turning the average man on the street into a currency speculator more so than before. Mm. You know, what's weird is that Keynes was wealthy and he got his wealth through currency speculation, which is so, which is such a fucking irony that for like all the influence he's had in giving fuel to, for all the, you just wouldn't have thought, you just wouldn't have thought that, but he, he made his money speculating on currencies in this time, in the, in this period of, of uh, currency volatility in the twenties. So, you know, anyone, anyone who's smart and is paying attention during a time of upheaval can get to the other side. Mm. And that's what he did. But I find it weirdly ironic that that's the, that's the case. Probably. I, I think I thought of that because, because there's, there was no really good data at the time he was prop because he thought about it so much. He was probably tapped into what was happening and could mm. form a view on where to speculate. Whereas most probably people couldn't. Had a lot of information asymmetry, I'm sure. Yeah. In the 20s, this is a big difference. Bank solvency was actually in question. And I don't think, I don't, I mean, yes, we've had the run of the banks. And yes, there's the BTFP debacle, which had to be created. You know, the BTFP had to be created to keep banks from going insolvent. But I still fundamentally don't think that there's a bank solvency question. Even if we have a bank, it's so weird. We could have a banking crisis. We reliably could. But ultimately, everyone will just withdraw their money to the bigger banks and the Fed will just bail everybody out. So I don't think there's really a bank solvency question now. And there was. People lost everything in the 20s. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because solvency was relevant in the 20s when there was actual mm-hmm. commodities, gold backing the money. But now it's insolvent by nature, right? Like, I mean... A zero reserve bank. It, well, how, how do you say this? It's like 
solvency is no longer a, a, a topic even of, for banks because, well, the central bank can just bail them out, yeah. right? So so long as the currency doesn't hyperinflate, then solvency is kind of off the table. Totally. Yeah, it's something I don't, it's of all the things I worry about, I don't worry about my banking, my bank just going under. I just don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, Which is a good thing. Because you, you bet know. on the bailout, right? Like Yeah. Or the FDIC, whatever, wherever you're at on the curve. It's like, you just kind of think that's kind of a lower probability, lower risk that you face. The, here's here's the big difference. 1914, the, the, it was the beginning of a very slow and painful transition from hard money to unbacked fiat. It, we didn't really complete that transition until 1971. And it started in 1914. If we're in a period of transition, like I really think we are now, it will probably be the other direction from unbacked fiat back to hard money or a commodity money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Balaji has this framing of history. We're, we're experiencing history in reverse. And I, uh, I love this Perry Merlin quote, which I read before. I'll read it again. He says that at the extreme of elasticity calls for reassertion of scarcity gain prominence at the extreme of scarcity calls for the reassertion of elasticity gain prominence neither tradition ever wins out completely however because the system that both traditions are trying to understand has both aspects at all times it speaks to the continuum that we live on now and forever in the monetary system, 1920s saw a call for elasticity. And now we're seeing the opposite. And if that succeeds, we'll see a call for elasticity again. Isn't this like betting on the future or something, right? When you when we say elasticity, we're talking about more lending, more monetary expansion. I mean, it used to be, well, it's still lending. Even when we expand the money supply now, it's the treasury borrowing from the Fed effectively and the Fed borrowing from everyone's purchasing power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in some way, there's like a bet on the future being made when you're asserting elasticity gain prominence, as he says here. But then when the, I don't know, when real, harsh reality comes to the surface uh the you know the bet on the future sort of gets pulled and then it goes to scarcity is that what it is like we're, we're it's this is the how we relate to the future ebbing and flowing over time no i don't i don't think so i i i think it's i think it's more about um when when people are without and they're suffering mm -hmm. they 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 vote for a handout they vote mm. for someone to just create some money so that they can have something mm. to eat. Really, I think that's what he's talking about, and Which is stealing from the future, basically. And and by the way, I, to undermine this quote, it is stealing from the future. And to undermine this quote, I think that what what Rothbart illustrated so well is that um, the 1920s is perceived as having been lacking in elasticity, that the gold standard was in mm. fact a, an inelastic money supply and that led to the problem. And everyone repeats that myth. Mm -hmm. And so you could see the shift away from hard money as being calling 
for the reassertion of elasticity. But I think Rothbart showed that there was plenty of elasticity. There was no shortage of elasticity. The elasticity was the problem. Hmm. So I think that um, we were on a hard money standard. It was elastic and it was fine. But there was a depression that the elasticity created. And the, res the response was a long campaign to create a fully elastic system. It doesn't make sense, but that's what happened. So, uh, but now there's a movement and we're part of it to bring us back to a scarcity based system. And uh, yeah. even though the first leg of this journey was uh, a calumny, a word I don't get to use very often, I still think we are seeing history in reverse from, from a sentiment point of view. Mm. Um and this is an interesting difference here, which is in the in the 1920s, the well, well, in the 30s, in the depression. Um, well, sorry, in the boom of the 20s, the central bank was trying to manipulate prices up. They're trying to force prices up to fight against the tide of productivity gains. This is everything that Rothbard was talking about. Now they're they're trying to keep prices from rising. You know, the the the, the inflation is upon us, and the system stuck in its own inflationary spiral is forcing prices up and they're trying to fight that. But, but I think in vain, I think they ha prices have to go up. They have to accept prices going up. Um, so I don't know, there's like different price mechanisms happening and the, 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 the powers that be are trying to achieve different things. Although if you abstract it away, it's really a similarity. They're trying to use the system to keep the system alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That well, was just the elasticity thing is just this weird illusion that makes you feel like scarcity is not real temporarily, but then it makes the scarcity worse in the end. It's like a, yeah. it's a strange mm -hmm. drug, right? It's almost like it makes reality feel like it's not there for a while, but then you get the hangover afterwards. At least a hundred years afterwards, you get it. <laughs> then a lot of uh, the elasticity drug taken in the past 100 mm -hmm. years, that's for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Again, that's why this is like, it's all just inevitable. It's, yeah. it's, it all just, there was no other way for it to happen. It happened so slowly. Mm -hmm. um, every massive inflation always starts with a first step. And you said it last time. What is it? Gradualism becomes, begets. Well, gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. I think that might mm -hmm. be Rothbard as well. Well, that's what we've been living. Um. Uh, a. Barton Hepburn wrote as a 1924 book called A History of Currency in the United States. And he has a passage. He says that the, the, the history, he's, he's, he was writing about 1873, but it, uh, it applies. He writes, the history of this decade is but a repetition of the experience of every nation with fiat money. The first step is taken. The rest follows easily. Inflation, delusion of the people, breach of faith. Disaster. Beautiful. Um, and this, and just to get back to what you and I were talking about it being, uh, whether we like it or not, drawn into the game of currency speculation, which I don't think is admirable, but is necessary for survival. Countries with a depreciated currency creates this vast net of interests that are vested in maintaining the continuation of the depreciation. Mm. You know, they say that uh, uh, 
inflation begets allies of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I'm, you know, I, I was, I've always been conservative. I've always been conservative with my money and I've always wanted to hold cash and I would have hold, I would be holding cash now, but I have been somewhat radicalized by the difficulty I had affording a home, um, the way in which going into cash, going into COVID um, made me poorer because I saw I saw an emergency coming. I saw a crisis coming and I decided to put that preparation for that emergency on my own balance sheet. And I went largely into cash. And then uh, that was the wrong decision. I was I was majorly diluted by that decision and I realized okay the 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 decision I have to make is I have to bet on the continual dilution of cash. Mm-hmm. So um yeah I had to choose one or the other. Uh and I don't feel like I'm wealthy enough to just like go half and half. Okay well I'll do half in cash in case cash works and I'll go half in bitcoin in case I'm just not wealthy enough for that. I kind of have to choose one or the other. This is the thing that I, I want to. This is like in the in the in the vein of summing it all up. You know, predicting the future is you have to give thought towards predicting the future. It's both possible and necessary. You have to go into the concept of speculation, which is what we're all doing. Mm-hmm. You have to assume that accurate. I mean, this is a simple thing that you don't really stop and think about. You have to assume that accurate predictions of the future are possible. And so you owe it to yourself to try and predict what's coming and then act upon that prediction while still living your life. So, you know, just remember that prediction is possible and prediction is necessary. I would have the entry. Go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to throw in the caveat. I agree with you on that, but it's got to be probabilistic, right? don't think that you've figured out the future and just like bet the whole house on it. Right. It's what, this is the chances that this happens. Here are the chances that that happens. And you're thinking through thinking in terms of probabilities rather than certainties. I think it'd be the one condition I would add to that, that all action is speculative. We never know if our intention is going to match the outcome, but the best way to deal with that uncertainty is to think in terms of probabilities. Like, based on what I've done, based on the work or research that I've done, this is the probability I'm assigning to this outcome, that outcome, et cetera, and then plan your actions accordingly. Totally the best advice you could give. Advice I have not followed. <laughs> um, also, you you really need to, uh, if this period mirrors the period of the 1920s, um, we're in for volatility. That's what we're in for. And volatility means that you are going to change your mind and that's okay. Um, I think that like, uh, there's some really good books on the history of hedge funds. They're kind of like, uh, really fun books. Um, I think more money than God is one. And then when genius failed, but they both highlight how, uh, Stan Druckenmiller is famous for changing his mind, like from between morning and afternoon, like mm-hmm. reversing a massive position, being like, oh man, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to allow for that, uh, allow for that and be like, it's okay. If you wake up one morning and think, oh, I, I have a strong conviction that A is going to happen. And then at five in the afternoon, you're like, 
I think it's the opposite of A that's going to happen. You have to account for the fact that that's actually you being rational and allow space for you to change your mind. Set up a financial structure for yourself to be able to change your mind. Mm. Um, yeah. There, there is, well, I say I don't trade. There's like a really small part of my Bitcoin holdings that I have sold and bought back at a loss pretty much every time, but it's me allowing myself some room. I mean, I have to feed my family. And when I get really stressed, I'll be like, shoot, I maybe I'm wrong. Um, I just need, maybe I need some expenses for a couple extra weeks. Um, and then I'll change my mind and say, no, I, I'll buy it back. I, I just think, I just think you have to allow yourself to do some one eighties and know that that's okay. And that that's what people who are observing, who are observant, they will do that. Mm. I'm not going to talk about this paper by Warren Weber about the about the Bitcoin, a Bitcoin standard, but this guy, you should look it up. This guy named Warren Weber before this was written before Safedine's book. He wrote it in 2015 and then he did a revision in 2016. It's fascinating. Everything that we've talked about in this series, he, he wrote it before we did. Mm. And I don't know. It's just like, I didn't come across this book until this paper until maybe six months ago. And I realized that he had, he had covered a lot of it. It's a shorter, it's a, it's not that long of a read. It's very interesting. It's worth your time, but um, I'm not going to go through the paper. Okay. Final, final thoughts. I think that we as Bitcoiners like to imagine this like what hyper Bitcoinization represents is this glorious end state where Bitcoin wins. And then the protocol, because it's so widely distributed and game theory states that we should all run the same version. And so that the monetary, the properties of the monetary network become static and the Bitcoin gives us probabilistically the most likely chance of achieving this. Humans have desired a static, a, a monetary network with static properties mm. for all of human history. <clears throat> and we've, we've never achieved it. And I don't think that Bitcoin will achieve it either. Mm. The system will always be attacked. Bitcoin will always be under attack. And people forget the basic principles of money. You have whole generations which forget the basic principles of money. I think that our children or our grandchildren or our grandchildren's grandchildren will fight this battle all over again. And I want to jump to, there's a lot of other final thoughts, but I feel like we've actually covered them. And I want to jump really to my final, final thought of this whole thing, which is that to maintain conviction, I've put a lot of pressure on myself to see ways in which the current system is broken and that the current system being broken has felt like it was a necessary precondition for Bitcoin to succeed, but I don't think that it is. The current system is just the system we have now. And when I first understood Bitcoin, like a glimmer of understanding, which is in 2015, when I read like the first real article on it, I just knew it was better and I knew it's what we were going to move to. 
I don't think that the success of Bitcoin depends on the failure of the current system. So while like this whole journey through Twilight of Gold has been amazing for my education and has been amazing for my conviction, you don't really need to know all of this and nothing I've said needs to be true for Bitcoin to win. And this whole hundred year history isn't a prerequisite for Bitcoin to win. Wow. Well, this has also been amazing for my education and my conviction. And I hope the same for my audience. And Sir Lester, it has been an honor going on this journey with you. I'm very grateful to you for suggesting it and for um, your patience uh um your your patience and your capacity to like allow room just to allow space for this i'm i'm so grateful this has been i mean for its own sake for its own sake it's been the most rewarding intellectual experience of my life going through this and uh i'm really grateful for it so thank you for being my partner in it Thank you. I am thrilled to hear that. And I think we're going to clock in at 17 episodes, which makes this a tie with the Sailor series for the longest series ever on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Job well done, sir. Thanks, man. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.